As the state of Hawaii is an archipelago essentially right smack dab in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, the first question people who go there are often asked is which island they're visiting. Indeed, there are seven islands that make up the state of Hawaii, eight if you count the uninhabited Kaho'olawe, which has remained untouched and has been set aside as a nature reserve, each of which is ecologically and geologically diverse. Maui, for example, is known for its many waterfalls, while Kauai is celebrated for its lush, untamed greenery. The Big Island, the largest in the chain, also known simply as Hawaii, is one of the United States' top coffee producers, and Oahu is where the state capital Honolulu is located. Each of these islands is unique, and draws crowds in the millions each year to bask in the glory of what's still seen as an unspoiled tropical paradise. But while the Hawaiian Islands are viewed as a unified collective entity in contemporary times, it's important to note that they weren't always this way. On the contrary, it wasn't until the early 19th century that they came together, thanks to a great and shrewd leader whose name is still revered amongst Hawaii's indigenous inhabitants. What were these islands like prior to unification? Who brought them together? And how did they become a powerful player in international trade as a result? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and Welina Ho, welcome back to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Hawaiian Islands rise out of the seemingly endless blue expanse of the Pacific Ocean in a series of emerald green peaks. They are, essentially, the tops of vast volcanic mountains that have risen from the ocean floor over millions of years, then moved away as others have formed in their place. In fact, the last island in the chain, Ni'ihau, is the oldest and furthest away from the most recent entry in the chain, the aforementioned Big Island, which is still volcanically active to this day. These islands were first inhabited by a truly remarkable people, whose knowledge of the sea combined with their navigational prowess led them to these shores some 1600 years ago. I'm referring, of course, to the Polynesians, a loose confederation of culturally and linguistically related peoples whose breadth stretches from New Zealand in the west to Easter Island in the east, the likes of which are separated by some 4,300 miles, 6,930 kilometers. The word Polynesian comes from the Greek meaning many islands, and if you know anything about these hardy and robust seafarers, it's easy to see how anthropologists and historians bestowed that moniker upon them. Having originated in Southeast Asia some 3,500 years ago, these Neolithic farmers and hunter-gatherers, for reasons that are unknown to us, began heading east by taking to the sea in sophisticated sailing vessels. Each of these boats was essentially a start-your-own settlement kit, equipped with everything these island hoppers needed to start over elsewhere. They had seeds for plants they'd cultivated, pigs and chickens, as well as provisions of fruit and fresh water to get them through the journey. One by one they settled and populated the islands they happened upon, until their presence could be found throughout the regions known as Micronesia and Oceania. The ancestors of the Hawaiians in particular are believed to have hailed from two places, the Marquesas Islands in the South Pacific and Tahiti in what's now French Polynesia respectively. They came in two big migratory waves, with the initial taking place around AD 400, and the second in the late 10th and early 11th centuries. Once they arrived, they began populating each of the islands, which were ruled by individual kings or chieftains known in the Hawaiian language as ali'i. According to tradition, these leaders were selected from their supposed descendants from the earth goddess and first Polynesian, a deity known as Papahana Umoku, or simply Papa. Despite having a common heritage and shared identity, it wasn't all unity and brotherhood for the Hawaiians at first. 
On the contrary, there were territorial disputes between Ali'i, who often clashed with one another for land and power. Wars between the islands were frequent, with intense fighting occurring on both land and sea. In short, it was a violent time for Hawaii and her people, and it lasted this way for over 1,300 years, with on-again, off-again fighting taking place at somewhat regular intervals. But then, in 1778, an event took place that would change the course of Hawaiian history forever. On January 18th that year, two strange vessels were spotted off the coast of Kauai. Two days later, they made landfall near the mouth of the Waimea River. The island's residents rode out to meet them, seemingly glad of the strange visitor's arrival. The ships, named the HMS Resolution and the HMS Discovery, hailed from a far-off country called Britain, half a world away. They were captained by one James Cook, who was passing through on his third and final voyage of discovery in the Pacific Ocean. Whilst on Kauai, he recorded the villages he visited, as well as the Ali'i, religious sites and natural surroundings before disembarking once more to find the famed Northwest Passage. Cook would return to the islands once more about a year later, though this time would find him on the Big Island. His appearance there coincided with a four-month religious festival known as Makahiki, which celebrates the return of the deity Lono, the god of peace, music, rainfall, and agriculture. While initially met with enthusiasm, the residents on Hawaii soon tired of the foreigners, as they began using up much of the island's natural resources. Cook and his crew were forced to depart, but a storm caused them to turn back. This time, however, they weren't greeted quite as warmly. Disputes between the two factions soon arose, with frequent raids of the resolution and discovery taking place over the course of three weeks. The Hawaiians plundered several items from the ships, including weapons, metal, and even a longboat. Infuriated by this, Cook and a handful of his men went ashore to retrieve the stolen goods, even going as far as attempting to take the then Ali'i of Hawaii, Kalani Opu'u hostage, but the natives wouldn't hear of it, and the captain as well as his men were killed while attempting to flee. The resolution and discovery left in haste, and never returned. Needless to say, the second encounter with Captain Cook was far from amicable, and it ended quite poorly. However, it left a lasting impression on both the residents of Hawaii as well as the Ali'i himself, as it revealed to them that there was indeed a greater and wider world beyond their island home. These encounters with the foreigners would have lasting effects, not just on the Big Island, but all the others in the chain, and would forever transform the country's socio-political landscape. In 1782, Three years after the Captain Cook fiasco, Kalani O Pu'u, the aforementioned Ali'i of Hawaii, lay on his deathbed. With his dying breath, he passed the crown, and therefore leadership of the Big Island, over to his son, Kiwala'o. In the same breath, he also bestowed religious authority onto his nephew, an impetuous young man named Kamehameha. While Kiwala'o assumed command of the throne, Kamehameha was tasked with being the guardian of the Hawaiian war god Kuka Ilimoku a position that offered him a considerable amount of sway and influence. Just below the Ali'i himself, the priests were the second highest class in the highly striated Hawaiian social order, and Kamehameha's post was no exception. While Kiwala'o's plans for leadership were limited solely to the Big Island, Kamehameha's vision was broader and more sweeping in its scope. The Captain Cook incident had left a lasting impression on him, as it did many on the island of Hawaii, but this exposure to foreigners made Kamehameha realize the potential of interacting with the strange men from overseas. He saw the opportunity to establish ties with them, trade and commerce, which would not only open Hawaii to the rest of the world after centuries of isolation, but also transform them into a venerable world power. But there was just one problem. The Hawaiian islands still weren't united. Even under the leadership of Kiwala'o, the squabbles for land and power between the various ali'i continued, as they had for the better part of ten centuries. Kamehameha felt something had to be done. 
Working behind the scenes, and in turn his cousin's back, he began gaining the support of local chieftains. After killing and defeating Kiwala'o in battle in July of 1782, he became Ali'i. Soon word spread throughout the islands that he was planning to unite them under a single banner. Most braced themselves for conflict. The few British and American traders who were stationed on the Big Island at the time backed Kamehameha's plan, offering guns, ammunition, and even the recipe for gunpowder to the cause. Of the Hawaiians, however, only one chieftain on Kauai, a man named Ka'iana, pledged his support for Kamehameha. Over the ensuing seven years, Kamehameha bided his time, waiting for the opportunity to strike. By 1789, he had amassed a great army and felt that the time to act had arrived at last. But the following year, his path would cross with two men who would prove indispensable to his plan. They arrived on two American fur trading ships, the Fair American and Eleonora, which rendezvoused in Hawaii while en route to the Pacific Northwest of the United States. While stopped on the Big Island to resupply, a misunderstanding between the Eleonora's captain, Simon Metcalf, and High Chief Kameeamoku led to tensions between the natives and the foreigners. Some days later, on Maui, one of the Eleonora's longboats had been stolen, with the crewmen still inside it. Furious, Metcalf traced the longboat back to the village of Olawalu, whereupon he found it destroyed and its crewman killed. Ordering all cannons to be moved to one side of the ship, they opened fire on the village, killing over a hundred residents. Word soon reached the big island of the massacre that had taken place at Olawalu, and High Chief Kameeamoku swore vengeance on the next foreign ship that made port. Incidentally, that ship was the Fair American, which was stranded off the coast of the village of Kona. Rowing out to meet them, Kameeamoku ordered his men to kill everyone on board, which they did, save for one lone survivor named Isaac Davis. For reasons that are unclear, Davis was spared and taken, along with the surviving boatswain from the Eleonora, John Young, by the high chief to Kamehameha's palace. The two ships, meanwhile, were pillaged of their resources. From the moment they arrived before the Ali'i's presence, they were grilled, though not maliciously or violently, for information. So curious was Kamehameha about Western culture and military tactics that he bombarded them with a flurry of questions. Though Davis and Young attempted to escape on more than one occasion, they were always brought back to the palace, where they were treated fairly and were even given their own quarters, eventually becoming chieftains in their own right and marrying local women. Initially fearing for their lives, the pair of foreigners quickly became Kamehameha's closest advisors and strategists, whose invaluable information on Western military tactics would provide him the upper hand in his plan to unite the islands into a single confederation. By mid-1790, he was ready. His first order of business was to gain control of Maui, the next island over. As their ali'i, Kahekili II, was away on Oahu at the time, Kamehameha's forces were able to successfully land on the island. From there they pressed inland, where the enemy army awaited them, their indigenous weapons of stone-tipped spears with serrated shark-teeth clubs at the ready. But they were little prepared for the onslaught that approached them. Remember when Kameeamoku's men raided the Eleonora and Fair American? The most valuable plunder with which they made off were weapons and artillery, namely guns and cannons. It was those self-same firearms that they were now using against the warriors of Maui. Needless to say, it was a swift, albeit bloody, victory for Kamehameha's troops at what has come to be known as the Battle of Kepaniwai. Thus Maui was consolidated under his sovereignty. Upon his triumphant return to the Big Island, he turned his attention to those in the Hawaiian nobility who might possibly stand in the way of his ascension. His first target was a powerful chieftain in the Puna district on the eastern tip of the island, one Keawema Uhili, 
whom he ultimately deposed. The next was Keua Kuahuula, the last standing ali'i of the island of Hawaii, who had led an uprising while Kamehameha had been away fighting on Maui. Upon the king's return, the rogue ali'i and his band of rebels fled to the vicinity of Mount Kilauea. An eruption coincided with their arrival at the base of the volcano, and the smoke and vapors quickly overcame several of the insurgents, killing them. Kuahuula, defeated, was ultimately captured by Kamehameha's troops and sent to the recently completed new temple dedicated to the Hawaiian war god, where he was to be offered up as a sacrifice. Here, conflicted accounts differ as to what happened next. Some relate that the humiliated Ali'i somehow mutilated himself so as to be an insufficient sacrifice. As per Hawaiian custom, those captured in battle and offered to the war god were to be in healthy and normal condition, save for wounds sustained in battle. Yet another account recalls how one of the chieftains loyal to Kamehameha tossed his spear at the Ali'i, killing him instantly. Whatever the case, Kuahuula died that day in early 1791. With him out of the way, Kamehameha became the first king of the island of Hawaii. From there, the king drew up his plans to bring the other islands under his jurisdiction. With a fleet of some 960 war canoes and an army 10,000 strong, he made for the lightly defended island of Molokai, which his forces were quick to subjugate. From there, he proceeded towards Oahu, landing his troops at Waialai and Waikiki. Unbeknownst to the king, however, one of his commanders, the ali'i of high rank named Kaiana, had defected over to the side of the king of Oahu, Kalani Kupule. With Kaiana's help, Kalani Kupule not only managed to obtain cannons and other western firearms, but had also had notches cut into a mountain ridge so as to defend a strategically important point on the island, the famed Pali Lookout, which can still be seen and visited today. At one point during the battle, as Kamehameha's forces seemed to gain the upper hand, Kalani Kupule used said notches on the mountain ridge to rain down cannon fire onto the enemy. Needless to say, the king of the Big Island incurred some heavy losses. In retaliation, he sent two divisions of his finest troops to attack Kalani Kupule's gunners from behind. With the gunners subdued, the Oahu troops were cornered, pressed against the edge of Pali Lookout. Using traditional Hawaiian weapons with muskets and cannons, Kamehameha's army pushed them over the edge, a drop of some 1,000 feet, 305 meters. 400 of Kalani Kupule's forces plummeted to their deaths. Following this devastating loss, it wasn't long before Oahu surrendered, and it too was consolidated into what Kamehameha himself referred to as the Kingdom of Hawaii. Over the ensuing 15 years, King Kamehameha led several campaigns, some violent, others not, to bring the remaining five islands into his jurisdiction. By 1810, with the peaceful acquisition of Kauai under the royal mantle, they were all under his command, united for the first time in their 1,400-year history. While several Hawaiians were opposed to the idea at first, the unification would prove highly beneficial for them and their society. With Hawaii now fully open to the world, trade increased, with such powers as Britain, the United States, Russia, China, and Japan vying to be trading partners with Kamehameha's mighty island nation. The Far East in particular benefited from trade with Hawaii, as the islands are home to a specific and special type of wood, sandalwood. These trees grow plentiful throughout the archipelago, especially on the Big Island, with the wood being used throughout Asia for incense, particularly in Buddhist and Taoist rituals. Kamehameha and his people grew rich in this prosperous sandalwood trade, and the country quickly became modernized. Despite this, however, Kamehameha was adamant about maintaining local traditions. While most countries that had opened to Western power saw mass conversions to Christianity, for example, the Hawaiians maintained their original polytheistic faith. It wasn't until the late 19th century, long after Kamehameha's death, that both the monarchs and their constituents made the switch. Queen Liliuokalani, the last Hawaiian monarch, herself had converted to Christianity. 
Throughout the remainder of his life, King Kamehameha did whatever he could to ensure that the islands would stay united, even after his death. He unified the legal system, drawing from an experience he'd had long before the unification. In 1782, as Kamehameha and his fellow warriors were carrying out a raid against an opposing village on the Big Island, he caught his foot on a rock and tripped. Two local fishermen, fearing for their lives, hit him on the head with a paddle, causing it to shatter. Left unconscious and presumed dead, the fishermen escaped. Over a decade later, those selfsame fishermen were brought before Kamehameha to be punished. But instead of delivering a harsh sentence, he blamed himself for carrying out an attack on innocent people, choosing instead to gift the fishermen large tracts of land upon which they could live and grow their own crops. Thus the law of the splintered paddle was passed, in which, quote, every elderly person, woman, and child can lie by the roadside in safety, unquote. This edict, drafted and adopted under Kamehameha's rule, was also used by his successors, and, in fact, is still contained within the state of Hawaii's constitution. It's an integral part of the Hawaiians' identity, and reveals a penchant for democracy and fairness that existed long before the annexation and eventual statehood by the United States in 1898 and 1959, respectively. Today, Hawaii's reputation throughout the world is that of an unspoiled island paradise. Having been there myself, specifically the island of Oahu, I can attest that it is indeed a beautiful place, but its natural grandeur betrays the complexities of its indigenous people and the long and winding road they took to unification. Hawaii was the 50th and last state to join the United States, and even though the Hawaiians have a long, oftentimes strained, relationship with America, the concepts of freedom and democracy are certainly not new to them. They have been a part of their culture and heritage since the reign of the great Kamehameha, and, if the king should have his way, will be intrinsically linked with them for generations to come. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed going on this trip to Hawaii with me, though, let's be honest, it doesn't replace actually going there. As with anywhere else in the world, the history of the islands is vast and rich, and something that ought to be explored. Do you enjoy history-related content and would like to receive it in your inbox? Then please consider subscribing and or becoming a monthly supporter. Visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget or monetary situation. Listening and sharing help me in big ways as well, so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in again next week for a special Memorial Day episode as we explore a truly remarkable division of the United States Army who valiantly served during World War II, right here on the History Loves Company podcast podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.